The podcast you're about to hear contains explicit language and sexual content. And while we're totally fine with that, if you're in charge of any youths, you may want to make sure you have the sex ed talk with them before they listen. All right, we're on to the show. Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to the Safe Sex T-Rex podcast. I'm Nathan Trexler. And I'm Brittany Trexler. Oh, my goodness. We have uh, quite a topic on our hands. Well, Nathan, uh, why don't you tell everyone what exactly is going on in the world today? Uh, well, right now, we this is the fourth or fifth day of, national, of riots going on across the United States and actually across the world. Yeah, so... Protests, mostly. For those who are listening um, later or who somehow have their heads under a rock but found us, not sure how that would have happened. Um, Yeah, there's a whole bunch of um, riots that have broken out and protests um, in response to the killing of George Floyd as well as um, several other you know, recent killings of black men and women and the protests horrible, are horrible stuff. highly, you know, against police brutality and are trying to bring recognition on a much larger scale to the issues that have been going on for centuries. And yeah, it's a nightmare. Um, not, you know, not the protests being a nightmare. Um, the fact that we're still fighting this fight is a nightmare yeah um and um i don't i i don't know about you nathan but i i think um you know as white people we've been mm, socialized a lot to um you know just ignore these issues or to not necessarily feel that we have um a part in them and right yeah i know i've i've spent a bit of time trying to like call out other white people who have been saying like oh you know like only only peaceful protests count and yeah other bullshit like that there's been a lot of like all lives matter coming up in my news feed and um yeah the the attempted silencing is is infuriating and and frustrating to say the least yeah and that's you know coming from us as white people like i can hardly imagine what the lived experience would be like um for our black brothers and sisters and siblings out there so yeah i mean you know we are going to cover a topic today um because i you know i thought it was really important it is pride month so for you know happy pride um and we'll be posting a lot um you know on our news feed and, and stuff related to pride really trying to honor like um black men and, and women um and uh, gender fluid folks who, um, you know, really kind of laid the groundwork for Pride as we know it today. Um, so be on our on our news feed looking out for that. Um, but I really wanted to try and find a topic where we could address some of the long-standing history that led to what we're seeing today. Um, because obviously, you know, these recent rash of killings is not new. No. Um, and the reason that protests have broken out 
is because of the fact that it's not new. And so today we're, we're going to cover a topic related to mistreatment of black people. Um, and we're going to be talking about the invention of the speculum and um, the healing of vesicovaginal fistulas. So we are going to be talking today about Anarcha Westcott, Betsy Harris, and Lucy Zimmerman. So this topic is not uh, new. It's been covered by a lot of different um, platforms already. So, you know, we really encourage people to go out and learn more. Um, there was an NPR um, podcast episode called Remembering Anarcha. Um, the, it was Hidden Brain. Um, and it had Bettina Judd and Vanessa Gamble um, as featured on there, who are both um, black women that do a lot of um, advocacy and education. So I highly recommend people go listen to that, um, you know, to get not just our lovely voices, but to get, you know, voices of people who are really experiencing this generational trauma. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, you know, there's a lot out there, but we're going to cover it today because I think it is very important. So, Nathan, do you have any clue what a speculum is? Well, no. Okay. So, a speculum is a gynecological device. Hopefully, you know what gynecology is. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, it's it kind of basically just looks like um like a duck bill. Um and it's and we'll have pictures up for anyone who somehow has not seen one of these. Um, they're easily Googleable. Yeah. Um, but it basically looks like like a little duck bill, and um, it's inserted into the vagina, and it is used for gynecological exams. Um, it, the name of the device um, is from the Latin word speculo, which means take a guess, Nathan. To open? No, it actually means mirror. Ah. So, um, like we said, it's a medical instrument. Um, it allows practitioners to um, see into, like, small bodily canals. You also have, like, ear speculums that can be used. Yeah. <laughs> like, tiny ones. Um, and different versions of a speculum have been, like, found in medical texts dating all the way back to um, the Greek physician Galen. Mm -hmm. um, and we've even had archaeological digs, um, including those of Pompeii, which have turned up um, like ancient speculums and um, it's believed that basically like the doctors who lived there before the Vesuvius eruption were the first to like manufacture um, these like medical devices wow. um, we found um, a, we found some of these ruins um, during the excavation of in 1770 um, there's a location known as the house of the surgeon which it got named because there was like a huge number of surgical instruments that were unearthed at, the, at, at that site. Um, and basically like ancient vaginal specula were like manually operated by a corkscrew. Um, they were composed of like dovetailed valves that opened and closed and allowed detailed examination. Um, and their designs are actually pretty similar to the ones that are used today. Um, they really, really fell out of favor um, because after the fall of the Roman Empire, we had the Middle Ages. <laughs> and um, yep. yeah, so you didn't touch women during that time. You just, nope, not allowed. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So, like, midwives, they were in charge of, like, helping women during childbirth and, like, pretty much anything that was wrong with you vaginally was, like, here, have an herb. Yeah. We don't want to touch it. (laughs) So, you didn't really have a whole lot of use of speculums. So, today, the, the modern, like, speculum is considered to have been invented by... Dr. James Marion Sims around the year 1845. Ooh. Um, yeah, okay, so we're going to talk about Sims um, because he sucks. <laughs> um, so just to kind of finish, round out the story of the speculum, um, it, it was, use of it was like super hotly debated after its invention There was an 1850 Royal Medicine um, and Chirurgical Society meeting. Um, It heard, like, arguments both for and against use of the speculum because, like, even during the 1800s, you have to think that was, like, you know, Victorian-ish era. Like, you still had a whole lot of, like, I don't really want to touch or deal with anything woman related yeah um so i mean there were doctors who were literally like oh god if we like put this medical device in in women it's gonna cause them to become sex crazed (sighs) which like if you've ever had a speculum inserted into your vagina (laughs) it's not that that's not the feeling you usually get no it's more like "Mm, okay am i can i go now (laughs) yeah have you have you done what you wanted to do? Huh. Um, okay, so the, the device, you know, it got updated from the um, Sims design, and um, it was, you know, eventually kind of adopted as, like, standard use by practitioners. Um, Thomas Graves updated it in 1870, and that tends to be, like, the design most commonly used now. Um, there are currently um, uh, female-identified... Um, uh, people who are still trying to like update and make the speculum as like least invasive as possible. Um, a lot of um, clinics, um, when you go in for a gynecological exam, if a speculum is needed, um, they will offer for um, patients to like, you know, insert it themselves or kind of allow autonomy in that way. Um, because as you might imagine, um, when something is going into the vagina, if people have any kind of trauma history that can be very triggering yeah that does not sound fun yeah um also you have you know a lot of people who do have a various number of um medical um vaginal like tightening or closing or clamping um that can cause insertion to be very very painful um so yeah it I think it's really important that as gynecological exams are done, as speculums need to be inserted, that they are um, done so with the utmost of care and the utmost of autonomy for the individuals who are going to be subjected to them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's the speculum. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about the man known as the father of gynecology, J. Marion Sims. That. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so first off, I want to talk about, we're going all the way back to the 1800s, and I want to talk real quick about what was slavery like during this time, because 
if you haven't gathered yet, that's going to feature heavily in this episode. Um, okay, so slavery during the time of Sims. Um, by 1820, there had been a U.S. ban on the importation of new slaves from Africa. So, woohoo, yay, good start. <laughs> um, so the problem with that, though, was most slaveholders, um, they were like, Okay, so the good thing was slaveholders were trying to, like, improve the living conditions of their slaves because they're like, okay, we don't want them to run away. Yeah. And we're trying to, like, keep them healthy for longer because there's not that many of them. Which also is terrible, though, because, like, for so long they were like, well, we just get more. So, like, who cares what their living conditions are like? <laughs> you That's know? really fucked up is and, what that is. <laughs> right, and if they try to escape, we'll just catch them and then do horrible things to them, you know? Um, but, yeah, so we're not allowed to bring new slaves in so they're trying to like make them last longer um and basically like you started to see some slaveholders like showing compassion for ill slaves however like most cases it's just pure economic self-interest like because slaves who become ill mean a loss of working time and potentially greater loss of and um and death and yeah i mean they're just these are people who care about their wallets. Right. Hmm. Who does that sound like to you? <clears throat> it rhymes with... Hump? Shmarublicans. <laughs> I went the sexual way. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So, basically, um, William Scarborough um, wrote Masters of the House... Um, of the Masters of the Big House, I'm sorry... Um, and it depicts slaveholders as going to great lengths to protect um, the health of their slaves, including vaccinating slave inf infants against smallpox and paying on average one to two dollars or about twenty nine dollars, um, you know, by uh, I believe this was done in 2018 um, annually per slave for medical care. So, you know, it's a start. <laughs> um, these actions are largely limited to what have been characterized as elite slaveholders um basically those who owned like 250 slaves or more um and the majority of slaveholders would attempt like home remedies and only after these failed would a physician be summoned so like you have some people who have a, a huge number of slaves who are like okay i'm gonna i've got the money so i'm gonna spend it um but like most people are like okay we're only gonna call doctors as a last resort um, and Southern apologists basically argued that, like, Southern slaves were well-treated in times of sickness, um, and they were like, look at all of these slave hospitals that started to pop up, and, like, um, you know, these physicians are arriving, and they've got private hospitals, and they're catering to the increased slave population, but it's like, no, <laughs> your no. economy is built on slaves, Yeah. so get out of here with your bullshit. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, J. Marion Sims. Um, okay, he was, he's basically argued to have been, like, one of the most, like, famous American surgeons of the 19th century. Um, like I said, he's considered as, like, the father of modern surgical gynecology. Um, and his rise to prominence began with his development of the first consistently successful operation for the cure of vesicovaginal fistulas. Nathan! Any guesses what a vesicovaginal fistula is? You brought me on the show. Of course I don't know what that is. Take a guess. No. You know at least one, one of those things is. Are they cysts? Not quite. So um, a, 
a vesicofaginal fistula, it's very commonly um, a result of like um, childbirth. Like it's a, it's a common complication of childbirth. Okay. Um, basically like a hole develops between a woman's bladder and her vagina. Now, as you might imagine, that's not great. <laughs> that does not sound like a good thing. No, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, you have like just a whole bunch of problems that comes from that. The main being that like the bladder is leaking into the vagina where it is not supposed to be leaking into. Uh-huh. Um, and you just have like constant urinary incontinence. It's not good. Um, it basically, it the the reason that vesicovaginal fistulas will occur is because like as childbirth is happening, there's a whole bunch of pressure going on mm-hmm. and the longer a head is in the vaginal canal, the more likely it is to cause this tearing. Um, obviously a lot more common back in the 1800s than today. Still a thing that happens today. Um, yep. And yeah. So, I don't know. You can imagine nobody wanted that. Right. (laughs) Not good. Um, So, we're going to get back to exactly why this matters for J. Marion Sims. But let's talk just a little bit about who he was. Um, An asshole, first off. Just keep that in mind. Um, He was born January 25th, 1813 in Lancaster County, um, South Carolina. His parents were um, John Sims and Mahala Mackey. Um, He was the oldest of eight children, and he was urged strongly by his father to join the professions of law or ministry, but Sims was like, nah, fuck that, Um, and he wanted to pursue medical training. So he began his training in 1833 at the Charleston Medical School before transferring to Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia after one year. Hmm. Philly! We've gotten better. <laughs> um, so he was considered a mediocre student at best. Yeah. Um, but he managed to graduate in 1835. A whole, you know, two years after beginning medical school. Woo. And we he didn't returned. Know anything back then. <laughs> Nathan, what did you learn in two years of college? Uh, that I didn't like college. <laughs> Apparently neither did uh, Sims because he was a mediocre student at best. Um, but yeah, so he was like, let me go back to Lancaster County and I'm going to start my own practice with all two years of medical training under my belt. I mean, we didn't know much at the time, so I guess everything that we knew about medicine you could have learned in two years. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but apparently he didn't because he like right off the bat lost two infant patients to malaria. And uh, he was like, oh, no, get me out of here. Um, and he relocated to Mount um, Meigs, Alabama, in the hopes of, like, finding a healthier climate and, like, better luck. He was basically like, I think it's South Carolina. That's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's not me. It's, it's them. I mean, to go from South Carolina to Alabama, I mean, it's not like you got better. Right. I mean, especially, well, even even in today's standards. Sorry. Sorry, Alabama. Hey, we just talked about the fact that, like, they don't let you sell sex toys there. Su- suck it, Alabama. Y'all need to get on your politicians. Figure this shit out. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so he remained in Mount Meigs until 1840, and at that point he moved to Montgomery, Alabama. 
he had a young family at the time, and this is when he really starts making a name for himself as a physician. So um, he did not start out um, gynecologically inclined. In fact, he was very much like, no. Ew, vaginas? Was that him? Don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he, like, boasted of, like, being the first doctor in the South to, like, treat club foot and cross eyes. Um, but, yeah, no, we don't remember him for that. We remember him for this nonsense. Um, so he he invented the modern speculum after being called to treat a female patient who had been thrown off a horse. Ooh. A wealthy white woman. Let's just say that because, like... Who do you think is riding a horse? <laughs> Wealthy white woman. Um, and basically he like got to her and he was like, ooh, I think this like pain that you're feeling in like your belly and your back, I think that's due to retroversion or like misplacement of the uterus. And so he was like, all right, here's what I get you to do. You're going to get on your knees and elbows. And then he like stuck his finger up in her vagina. And you, you can't see me, but I have an as exasperated look on my face. <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, this, okay, to be fair, this worked um, because she, like, her pelvis relaxed and she was relieved and, like, woohoo. So, like, that part, not so bad. Um, now, here's the thing. At this time, it's, like, super uncommon for doctors to, like, have any gynecological training, interact with women's genitals, like, they were male physicians were supposed to like avert their eyes um or like look directly into a patient's eyes when performing gynecological treatment which like that feels creepier that sounds way more awkward that feels creepier Um, (laughs) like okay guys but (laughs) don't do that please don't don't do that just just blank stare it's like that moment where like you're at your dentist and like you don't know where to look because they're like all up in your mouth and they're like asking you questions and you're like, do I just stare at you? Like, what do we do in this situation? You just make noises. Okay, but so this treatment of the woman who fell off the horse gave him an idea, ding, 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 for the treatment of another patient. This patient was Betsy. Betsy Harris and you know I'm gonna say their names over and over again because almost every like recounting of I can't tell you how many articles it took me to find their full names and I was like very sad about this um so yeah so it gave him an idea for this treatment of Betsy Harris so uh, he goes back to Betsy Betsy is a slave woman um, and he had been referred to her because she had, guess what? A vesco-vaginal fistula. Um, and Sims had actually been, like, kind of curious about possibly coming up with a treatment for this because at the time we didn't have anything. Right. Um, and that's why Betsy was referred to him. And he, like, goes and finds her, and he's like, hey, I want to check something out. Um, so he basically, like, puts her in this same position um and he like gets a pewter spoon and he like bends it all up and like stuff you know like matrix style mm-hmm. and he like sticks it in her and like uses his fingers the same way he did basically to like open the vagina and he says that he had seen everything as no man has seen before okay this is his invention of the speculum. 
which allows him to then go on to do experiments to establish a cure for the vesco-vaginal fistula. So, okay. The other thing that happens with this is he um, comes up with what's known as the Sims position, um, which is like, I don't know, I was looking at pictures for it, and I was like, this is how I fucking sleep. Um, (laughs) Basically, it's like you pretty much like lay on your side. Um, It's it's called a lateral decubitus position. I'm not a doctor. Um, Decubitus position. Mm -hmm. Um, So you like lay on your fucking side. Um, and you pull your, typically like you lay on your left side, you pull your right knee up and then you kind of like have your left leg like extended and it's like, cool. Now we can get to your vagina. Yeah. Woo. Mm -hmm. That's known as the Sims position. That's interesting. Um, yeah. So like, that's typically like how he would start to see everything that was going on. Um, and okay. So Vanessa Gamble, who I mentioned earlier, um, She's a university professor at, of medical humanities at George Washington University. Um, she said that Sims's practice was like deeply rooted in the slave trade. Um, and he built, he ended up building an eight person hospital in the heart of slave trading district in Montgomery. And while most healthcare took place like on the actual plantations themselves, there were some stubborn cases that ended up being brought to Sims and he would patch up slaves so they could, you know, continue producing and reproducing for their masters great which also we should definitely mention now that a lot of these women were being patched up to go back to their plantations and work immediately oh no and be raped we gotta put that out there you know because a lot of the time that these women were ha- these women were having vesco-vaginal fistulas as a result of pregnancy and birth, those pregnancies and births uh, were not consensual. Right. So let's not forget that. Um, okay. But yeah, so he's like patching people up, sending them back for all sorts of horrible treatment. And because otherwise they're like useless to their owners. And um, Vanessa Gamble puts, like, an emphasis on, like, this is the concept of soundness. So, like, being a sound slave meant that you were producing um, for, you know, men and women and reproducing as women. Um, Women having fistulas made them less sound, right? Because you have to also remember, like, with the slave, with slaves not being allowed to be imported anymore, how are we making new slaves? Slave women. Yeah. So, yeah. If you have a vesco-vaginal fistula, you're not giving birth again. Yeah. So, it wasn't about making them healthy. Yeah, we got to patch this up. (laughs) Um, Now, I mean, as you can imagine, right, like, you didn't want a vesco-vaginal fistula. Like, you know, it's hard horrible that like people were being patched up to go back and like reproduce but also like it was painful to have one of these and it you know made you very sick and so like women didn't want these it would be great if they had a way to fix this the way we went about fixing it not so great um okay so here's what happens so slee um sims figures out this whole speculum thing he figures out you know the sims position he has betsy he's like cool great 
let's see what we can do to fix up this vesco-vaginal fistula. I'm going to suddenly become okay with putting my fingers all up in women. So uh, basically Sims writes to slave owners in the area and he says, send me your slave women with, with these fistulas. And um, if you provide like clothing and taxes, then I'm going to take ownership of your women until your, their treatment is complete. I will house them and, you know, do all the, you know, all this medical care, which I use loosely care, on them. Quotation finger <laughs> marks. Um, and he actually wrote an autobiography called The Story of My Life. Um, and he like basically said like, this was the most memorable time of his life and there was never a time he said there is never a time that i could not at any day have a su have had a subject for operation Ugh. yeah not great <laughs> um so what we come to know is that there's around 12 to 17 enslaved women that um sims ends up doing these experiments on we know the names of three of them which we will say again Anarcho Westcott, Betsy Harris, and Lucy Zimmerman. So um, we know about these three women in particular because um, they're in Sims records. Um, we don't, you know, the names of the other people who were experimented on are pretty much lost to history. Um, but we do know that there were more people who do not get the recognition that they deserve for having gone through this. Yeah. Um, and it should be noted that fistulas, I mean, like we said, they were fairly common, but they were most especially common among the enslaved because, you know, malnutrition, um, younger age, like. Right. Black... Just really bad conditions for giving birth. Right. Yeah. Like, and like. Black enslaved women were more likely to have children, like, on average three years younger than white women. And as you can imagine, like, when your body is smaller and, like, maybe not as Brand, mature, more. it's more likely to have complications during birth and, like, give in to the pressures of tearing and everything. Yeah. So, um... Okay, so Lucy. So the he, Lucy was, she was 18, and she was the first one that Sims operated on. Um, she had given birth a few months prior um, to these experiments beginning, and she hadn't been able to control her bladder since. Um, so it, during Sims's procedure, patients were completely naked for no reason whatsoever, because you have to remember, at the time, other gynecological like exams as they were were done with like every stitch of clothing on right for you know white women uh no in this case naked totally naked um they were asked to perch on their knees bend forward onto their elbows so that their heads rested on their hands um and lucy endured an hour-long surgery she was screaming crying out in pain, and nearly a dozen other doctors watched. Ugh. Now, Nathan, you'll notice, screaming, crying out in pain, guess what she wasn't? Anesthetized. Anesthetized. Now, 1845, we didn't have, like, ether anesthesia until 1846. So, 
common practice at the time. Okay. Not to anesthetize patients because we didn't have it, right? Right, sure. Um, a lot of the times, like, opium, morphine, those things would be used, um, which we'll talk about. Um, but, yeah, no, she's right, wide awake, <laughs> feeling every bit of this. Um, and it, Sims later wrote, like, Lucy's agony was extreme. She became extremely ill due to the use of a sponge. Like, basically, he put a sponge in there, and his goal was, like, let's drain urine away from the bladder. But it, like, hardened up, and it led to blood poisoning. Oh. Um, and he said, I thought she was going to die. It took Lucy two or three months to recover entirely from the effects of the operation. That is absolutely terrible. Yeah. So now, and here's the thing, like Sims wrote that like these women were clamoring to have this done, but the reality is we don't know whether or not they were really consenting because could they give consent? I mean, you know, one of my professors said that like, you really only have choice when you have three options. And it was like, yes, these women like most likely wanted this problem to be fixed but the reality is they're they don't own their own bodies at this time they're being sent to sims by their masters where's the choice in that you know like they they don't have say over where they're going they're right. being sent there by their masters yeah it didn't sound like me sound to me like they had much of a choice yeah and they know that the only chance of like any kind of life that they have upon being sent back to their masters is like if this problem is fixed because otherwise they're useless you know yeah so yeah like it is there really choice and consent in that so you know and that's what a lot of people bring up now right like and okay we're white people right like we don't there's very little room for us to really like put our opinions out there on subjects like this because really you know people whose ancestors are the ones that were subjected to this their voices need to be first yeah but i'm gonna go with that's not true informed consent it doesn't sound like it to me no so i think the you know protests on uh, this issue are perfectly justified <laughs> And, um, and I can't tell you, I read so many articles that are like in defense of Sims and blah, 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 blah. And it's like just all white men academics being like, stop attacking Sims. Which like, okay, no. <laughs> <laughs> like we need to have these conversations because yeah. hello, horrible. <laughs> just because they're hard conversation to have doesn't mean you shouldn't have them. Yeah. Okay. So, um... This goes on for, like, a four-year period. Did he ever actually fix anything? Well, let's talk about that. So, like I said, um, he's carrying out operations on, like, 12 to 17 enslaved women. Um, he even trained some of them to become his surgical assistants. Um, now, here's the thing. <laughs> Why did he do this? Well, like we said, uh, when Lucy's operation happened, there were like a dozen doctors watching because, you know, first off, like watching surgeries and like other stuff like that really was just a, 
a pastime. I mean, think they didn't have shit to do. So they would go and watch surgeries. They would go and watch teeth being pulled. They would go and watch like all sorts of stuff. So like not uncommon. Also, if there was someone in your area who was doing something, you wanted to be there. Because like, first off, that's a good way to learn. I mean, they only had two years of medical school. Right. Right. Like you learned by going out and doing and like mentoring under people. So like this was not an uncommon thing. But so many people couldn't stand to watch these operations. They were like, I think you're going too far, sir. Um, And so people and it took so long for him to like get anywhere. People basically were like, eh call us later like let us know when you do something so people stopped coming to watch and so the only people he had to act as assistants were the women that he was operating on and like i can imagine that if you're like there which position would you rather be in oh that's gotta be traumatic like would you rather be in the position of like being experimented on or like not <laughs> you know oh man like it, it, i'm just saying um okay so he and and then on top of that like in all likelihood many of the enslaved women there were addicted to opium because sims was administering opium to ease pain and also to slow down their digestive systems because he was worried that frequent bowel movements would disrupt their internal stitches which is like fair enough concern, but also like all these enslaved women are addicted to opium, so that's not good. Right. Um, so yeah, not a great situation all around. <laughs> well, after about mm, 30 operations on a narco Westcott, just, I'm sorry, 30 operations on one person, by the way, oh. a narco, um, Sims was finally successful in repairing fistula so let's talk about westcott for just a second so that this isn't all about sims um so very little is actually known about anarcho westcott um what we do know comes from records kept by the plantation slave owner um and i i tried to find more about um betsy harris and lucy zimmerman and it just you just don't have records um but the plantation slave owner kept records um medical journals written by sims he kept a couple of things about her um, and there were, like, primary documents written um, um, by Sims himself. So you had medical journals reporting on the work and also Sims reporting on the work. Um, basically, what we do know is that at the time of her pregnancy, Westcott was 17 years old. She was living in Alabama, obviously. Um, and she had a severe form of rickets that was caused by um, lack of vitamin D and also from malnutrition. Um, this had disfigured her pelvis which made it like basically impossible for her to give birth. So when she went into labor in June, 1845, she spent three days trying to give birth. Oh my. Yeah. That is so long. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And Sims actually showed up to assist in the labor um, on the third day. So that's how Sims um, met Anarcha Westcott. Um, Remember 17. (laughs) 17. Wow. Um, and it should be noted that, like, her problems with rickets, you know, common for slave people because 
malnutrition yeah. and lack of vitamin D. Um, so yeah, so she was the woman that ultimately um, surgeries were successful on and um, it was her body that gave us the um, eventual surgery that is, you know, the the surgery is still used today to repair vascovaginal fistulas. Um, so Sims goes on to, you know, take this surgical invention of his. And of course, you know, he ended up um, completing the surgery on all of the women who were left and sending them back to their plantations like a dick. Um, and then he went on to um, begin to practice on white women using anesthesia, which was now available and had been available for what, Since, three years? You know, like the second year of him doing these experiments. Now, defense of Sims argues that like anesthesia wasn't widely known or accepted. Uh, I'm going to go with bullshit and also because of things that Sims wrote, which we'll talk about. Um, yeah, Sims basically like many doctors didn't really trust anesthesia it was like new you know new kid on the block yeah traveled slowly um but sims basically um believed that black people didn't experience pain like white people did so even if sims knew at the time about anesthesia it's likely that he wouldn't have even used it on these women because he didn't believe that they felt pain the same way that white women did Yeah. I want to bang my head against a wall. Yeah. Not great. Um, and we're going to talk about whether or not that's still an issue in today's world. Um, yeah. How do you not believe? I mean, like, you're literally, like, watching these women, like, go through these excruciating in pain and pass out from pain and, like, Ugh. I just can't. I just can't. Okay. Um, yeah. You just can't even? You just can't even. Maybe that's why you're so odd. It's a problem. Okay, so Sims goes on to, like, you know, teach this surgery to all across, you know, the nation, and, and he ends up opening a practice, um, I believe, in New York, and he um, eventually becomes president of the AMA and is just, like, widely regarded as like woo great guy <laughs> um and of course very quickly the world forgot the sacrifices of the women whose bodies he used and experimented on to for his own gain as is you know the tale of the world um and just to bite back even harder at some of the apologists for Sims. Because, of course, a lot of people are like, well, everything was racist at the time. You can't really blame him, right? Like, it's another one. Like, he was, he was, okay. Um, this was not the only time that race became an issue for Sims. Um, writer and medical ethicist Harriet Washington noted that Sims' racist beliefs affected more than his gynecological experiments. Before and after these experiments, he also tested surgical treatments on enslaved black children 
in an effort to treat um, Trismus nascentium, which is like neonatal tetanus. Oh. Um, he's not so well known for this one because there was little to no success. Um, so he he basically just believed that like African Americans are less intelligent than white people. Probably because we're not educating them. <laughs> um, and it, like he basically like believed that was because their skulls like grew too quickly around their brain. Fuck that guy. I don't even know where he would have gotten that. Um, and so he like operated on black children using a shoemaker's tool. What? To like pry their bones apart and loosen their skulls. What? Yeah. Oh yeah. And people are like, he wasn't racist. <laughs> like, oh. I don't. You can't get more racist than that. I like, should not. I should not have eaten before talking about this. It, it's bad. <laughs> um, yeah, he was a racist. I just, you get, guys, please, <laughs> D- uh, come on. Um. Okay, so like we said, 1850s, moves to New York, first women's hospital, you know, because people weren't treating women. It's not like it was a great thing for him to be like, oh, women's hospital. Like, people weren't treating women. And he was like, well, this is my only way to, like, do anything in the field because everything else I've done has failed. (laughs) Um, Okay. Oh, also, one more time. Um, Just just nailing that coffin. Nailing the coffin. Um. When any of Sim's patients died, um, he said that the blame lay squarely with the sloth and ignorance of their mothers and the black midwives who attended them. And he didn't think anything was wrong with his methods. I'm, I'm just saying, like, the dude was a problem. Yeah. Um, I mean, the good news is that, like, his practices did ignite controversy during his lifetime. Um, a lot of the medical community and like white colleagues too were like, mm, I think you took things too far. Yeah. Maybe don't do that. Um, but ultimately he like became, you know, considered this trailblazer and this like, celebrated medical surgeon and like to the point of getting a statue um opposite of the new york academy of medicine in central park also in south carolina outside his old medical school there's a whole bunch of buildings and other things on medical campuses named after him a whole bunch of textbooks are like j Marin sands woo j Marin sands um with absolutely no mention of any of the slave women and their sacrifices. You know, mm. let's just bury that in history. Um, but, you know, people are people and they're amazing. And there were activists that worked like very hard to get the Central Park statue removed. Um, well, that's good. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio um, confirmed that um, the Sim, sta- Sim statue was one of the monuments under assessment um, in his 90-day review of Symbols of Hate. Um, and Gamble said that, like, when I see the statues and the memorials to Sims, I see what isn't shown. Yeah. And in January 2018, 
the mayor's advisory commission announced their decision to remove and relocate the J. Marion Sims statue. It was removed from Central Park on April 17th, 2018, and is set to be relocated in the Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. Um, the current plaque um, is being replaced by one that educates the public on the origins of the monument and the controversial non-consensual medical experiments that Sims used on women of color, mostly enslaved black women. Yeah. Um, the names and histories of the three known women whose bodies were used in the name of medical and scientific advancement um, are taking their rightful place on the new plaque. And Vinnie Bagwell is a um, black art- artist who has been commissioned to create a new statue which will be specifically honoring the black bodies that were um, sacrificed in the making of today's advancements. Wow. Which is like super cool. Yeah. Um, and that is set to um, be erected in 2021. Um, Maybe if we get past this pandemic. <laughs> um, yeah. I actually saw like a mock-up of it and it's like really neat. It's like, um, uh, I think it's like, yeah, so um, Vinnie Bagwell's um, statue is called Victory Beyond Sims. Um, and it's um, like a, basically like an 18-foot angel, which is like super cool. Um, and it's like carrying like a modern modernized like rod of Asclepius, which is a um, like medical um, symbol. Yeah. Um, and it's like in the skirt of the angel has like... Um, faces of like black women and children and it's like super epic and amazing and i'm like super oh, I see stoked that, that I it's see a getting created that. that's so cool yeah and so um we'll put up like um there was some controversy around like the um decision of like the the artist and we'll put some like um links to um uh information about the statue that's being erected because it's just like super awesome that like these women are finally getting you know the recognition that they deserve yeah um but yeah so (laughs) i told you we would get back to uh some of you know the problematic beliefs that um persist today so um one of the things that is still very much a problem is this belief that um like black people don't feel pain the same way as white people (laughs) Um, so the University of Virginia conducted a study that was published in, um, April 2016, um, and what they found was that half or about 40% of first and second year medical, um, student trainees, um, that were surveyed held one or more false such beliefs, um, including, like, black people's skin is thicker than white people's or, like, has less nerve endings, and therefore they feel less pain. What? Yeah. Who, oh, yeah. Who tells people these things? Uh, I don't know, but it's a problem. Um, and then one of the, um, you know, not to shy away from gyneco- gynecology, one of the things that I really wanted to shed light on is black mortality, um, black maternity mortality. Um, so we know that black mothers die from pregnancy-related complications at three to four times the rate of white women. And white maternal mortality has been dropping in sub-Saharan Africa while rates actually increased in the United States from 2000 to 2014. 
Um, socioeconomic status, education, and other factors don't appear to protect black women from this risk, and factors including smoking, drug abuse, and obesity do not explain these differences. What's going on then? Well, <laughs> uh, racism. Um, Obviously. Okay, so that is 2000 to 2014. Some more updated data. Um, the National Center for Health Statistics show that um, national maternal mortality rate um which means like deaths caused or aggravated by pregnancy um was an estimated 17.4 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births in 2008 when 658 women died i'm sorry 2018 when 658 women died um these new statistics are similar to figures from cdc um and the CDC found that about 700 women die from complications related to pregnancy or childbirth every year, putting the U.S. in last place among developed nations in terms of maternal mortality. Yeah, I mean, our healthcare system is absolutely garbage. Yeah, it's garbage, and we're white. <laughs> yeah. You can only imagine how garbage it is for, you know, not white people. Um. Figures from the CDC's Pregnancy Mortality Surveillance System indicate that from 2007 to 2016, black mothers died at a rate of 3.2 times that of white mothers. And in the data set, Hispanic mothers also had the lowest rate at 11.5% um, pregnancy-related deaths. I'm sorry. Um, had the lowest rate at 11.5 pregnancy-related deaths per 100,000 live births, slightly less than white women's rate of 12.7 pregnancy-related deaths Per 100,000 live births. Um, basically, black women in the United States experience unacceptably poor maternal health outcomes. This includes disproportionately high rates of death related to pregnancy or childbirth. Both societal and health system factors contribute to high rates of poor health outcomes and maternal mortality for black women. Um, these women are more likely to experience barriers to obtaining quality care and often face um, racial discrimination throughout their lives um what we, due to racism sexism and other systemic barriers um we have income inequality black women are typically paid just 63 cents for every dollar paid to white non-hispanic uh men jeez yeah um median wages for black women in the united states are $36,227 per year, which is $21,698 less than median wages for white non-Hispanic men. That's so much money. Yeah. That's, that's so much money. Um, lost wages mean black women and their families have less money to support themselves and their families and they may have to choose between essential re resources like housing, childcare, food, and healthcare. Black women are more likely to experience complications throughout course of their pregnancies than white women. They're three times more likely to have fibroids, which are like benign tumors that grow right. in the uterus and like can cause postpartum hemorrhaging. Um, and fibroids occur at younger ages and grow more quickly for black women. Um, Black women also display signs of preeclampsia earlier in pregnancy than white women. 
Um, and this condition involves like high blood pressure during pregnancy and can lead to severe complications, including death if it's improperly treated, which of course, if you're a black woman, it's likely to be improperly treated. Um, and black women also experience physical weathering, which means that like their bodies age faster than white women's due to exposure to like chronic stress. Um, and this is linked to like socioeconomic disadvantage and discrimination over the life course, um, which makes pregnancy riskier at an earlier age. Jeez. So yeah, um, the long story short of this is <laughs> death is occurring in all ways, shapes and forms for black people um, in today's society. And you know, it has been occurring for centuries. Um, black bodies have been used and abused by the medical system and continue to be. And, you know, all of the protests that are going on now, this is the type of thing that it is, you know, baked in and grounded in and why people are so angry and exhausted and passionate and defeated. Well, yeah. I mean, you just have it coming from all sides. Like, black men are being brutalized by the police. I mean, women are too. And um, obviously, like, transgender deaths are huge. And it's such an issue. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> there's so many examples of, like, how the system is just rigged. Yeah. And how it how it was built rigged yeah i mean we really just need to do a lot of work to help people who are in a system that they're that's not helping them yeah so you know i i wanted to talk about like obviously this is not a very happy or funny episode um because it's it's important to i mean levity is important in the world but it's also very important to like put things in context and to like understand why the world is what it is today and why it's right that people are out in the streets protesting because how could you not be when this is the legacy of your ancestors yeah to forget is to really damage the everything that we have to offer and i also want to say you know it there are probably things from this episode that we, or I should say mostly I, um, may have said wrong or like should have embellished. And like if there's anything that people would like to call me out on, I'm more than, um, more than thrilled to get that feedback because I think it's important um, to, you know, to, to, be, learn, open to be open to and education. Yeah. And yeah, because I think a lot of people are feeling very attacked um and i think we need to start viewing it as like someone is trying to tell you something and it's good to be educated and to be open to being educated yeah um so if you feel that i said anything offensive please let me know <laughs> um because i i think you know there's only so much we can do um and certainly it's it is our job to carry this because um it our ancestors are the ones and our and our friends and family um, and ourselves are the people who have perpetuated the system to be what it is today. Yeah. And so like now it's our turn to, to carry the weight of undoing it. 
um, you know, moving forward. And yeah, um, part of that is education, you know, and, and this is my way of contributing to educating more people about the horrors that have persisted for so long. (laughs) And, um, you know, hopefully, hopefully next time we'll be able to get back to a little bit of levity because, you know, that is, I think, in many ways how we face the world because when things are horrible, sometimes you need a laugh. Yeah. Um, This didn't feel like the place to do that. So I, uh, you know, wanted to, to find a time and a space for this topic. And then, you know, next time we'll be back kind of in our usual group. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you learned something. I certainly did. Uh, Make sure to check out our website at www.safesexpodcast.com or to find us on social media at facebook.com slash rexedpod or on Twitter at safesexpodcast. If you have feedback for us or you want to suggest an episode topic, our email is rexed at safesexpodcast.com. If you really enjoyed the show and would like to join our RexEd fan base as a donor, you can visit us at patreon.com slash safesexpodcast. You can also find a brand new link on our website uh, straight to our Patreon. Subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you liked what you heard, please, please, please leave us a review. And if you didn't uh, like what you ha- what you heard, go ahead and keep social distancing and bury us in history like so many unfortunate things have been. Special thanks in this episode goes to all protesters out there fighting the good fight, whether you're out in person or speaking up against hatred in your news feeds. We also want to thank Keshko for use of their song, Play For Your People. And remember, fuck J. Marion Sims. The names of these women are Anarka Westcott, Betsy Harris, and Lucy Zimmerman. And Black Lives Matter, both on the streets and in the sheets. (laughs) 